Hey, true crime fanatics, I'm Jake Barton, creator of the history storytelling podcast called Historium, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Warning. This episode contains graphic details involving sensitive subjects including rape, sexual assault, and child molestation. These topics may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Today I'm going to talk to you about hoaxes. When I mention the word hoax, what comes to mind? My mind immediately goes to the balloon boy. Do you guys remember that fiasco? If you don't, let me remind you a little bit about that crazy story. The balloon boy hoax occurred on October 15, 2009 in Fort Collins, Colorado, when Richard and Mayumi Henny allowed a gas balloon filled with helium to float away into the atmosphere and then claimed that their six-year-old son Falcon was inside of it. The balloon, which resembled a silver flying saucer-style UFO and presumably the boy, were reaching altitudes of 7,000 feet or 2,100 meters above Colorado. Authorities sent several National Guard helicopters and local police in pursuit of the balloon. After more than an hour-long flight that covered more than 50 miles or 80 kilometers across three counties, the balloon landed approximately 12 miles or 19 kilometers from the Denver International Airport. It was quickly discovered that Falcon was found to not be inside the balloon. As the media began reporting that an object had detached from the balloon and fallen to the ground, the fear was that the boy had fallen out of the balloon while it was in flight. Later on that same afternoon, Falcon was found to have been hiding in the home's attic the whole time. People began to speculate that the whole balloon boy thing was a hoax, a publicity stunt orchestrated by the Hennies, especially after they appeared on Larry King Live, When they asked Falcon why he was hiding, he turned to his father and said, you guys said that we did this for the show. A couple days later, law enforcement decided to charge the parents with several felony charges. The next month, the parents pleaded guilty to the charge of attempting to influence a public servant. Richard was sentenced to 90 days in jail, and Mayumi was sentenced to 20 days of weekend jail. They were also ordered to pay $36,000 in restitution. I started looking around the internet for other hoaxes, and it was just kind of overwhelming to search through them all. So I went to a Facebook group that often has some quite extraordinary discussions. My friend Barry, host of the Extraordinary Stories podcast, graciously allowed me to pose the question to his followers. What comes to mind when you think of hoaxes? And I did indeed get some extraordinary answers. My very first response came from a group member who shall remain nameless. Well, this wasn't in the news, but she said that her dad pretended to be dead for over a year to evade child support obligations. What the actual heck, right? Needless to say, It's caused some rifts in the family, so she asked that I not mention her in this little bit that I'm doing on hoaxes. Totally understandable. 
The next answer came from Senga. She mentioned Belle Gibson. I just actually recently heard this hoax a couple of weeks ago on Once Upon a Crime. So, this Belle Gibson is an Australian blogger, app publisher, and alternative health advocate. So, her entire marketing platform, as it turns out, was founded on fraudulent claims of having self-managed multiple cancer diagnoses through diet and alternative therapies, as well as false claims of having donated significant incomes to charities. She had this cookbook called The Whole Pantry, along with a smartphone app, both of which were withdrawn from sale as soon as the jig was up. Her and her app were also featured in promotional material for the then unreleased Apple Watch, but that too was immediately removed from Apple advertising as soon as the controversy hit the media. Next, Ed in the group mentioned the Hitler Diaries. These were a series of 60 volumes of journals supposedly written by Adolf Hitler. However, as it turns out, they were forged by Konrad Kujau between 1981 and 1983. They were purchased in 1983 for 9.3 million Deutschmarks by the West German news magazine Stern, which in turn sold serialization rights to several organizations. One of the publications involved was the Sunday Times, who requested of their independent director and historian, Hugh Trevor Roper, to authenticate the diaries. He did so, pronouncing the diaries as being genuine. At the press conference to announce the forthcoming publication, Hugh Trevor Roper announced that upon reflection, he changed his mind. Other historians also raised questions about the validity of the diaries. After some rigorous forensic analysis and testing, which the diaries had not been previously subjected to, it was quickly ascertained that the diaries were indeed fakes. Trenton mentioned in the group discussion the alien autopsy hoax. It was a 17-minute black-and-white film depicting a medical autopsy being performed on a supposed alien. It was released in 1995 by London-based entrepreneur Ray Santilli. He touted it as an authentic autopsy on the body of an extraterrestrial being recovered from the 1947 crash of a UFO near Roswell, New Mexico. The footage, he claimed, was supplied to him by a retired military cameraman who asked to remain anonymous. Fox Television broadcasted the footage in the United States on August 28, 1995, under the title, Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction. The program sparked a sensation, with Time Magazine declaring the film had ignited a debate with an intensity not lavished on any home since the Zapruder film. Fox rebroadcasted the program twice, each time to higher ratings, winning its time slots both times. Although in the broadcast version, some parts of the autopsy were pixelized or edited out because of what was described as graphic nature, according to Santilli. Earlier versions contained the complete and unedited film 
in addition to previously unreleased footage of the wreckage, which was presented as the remains of the alien craft reported to have crashed in Roswell. The film's director, John Jobson, became immediately suspicious upon meeting Santilli in London, and after conducting further investigation, told Fox Television that he believed the whole thing to be a fraud. According to Jobson, Fox made it clear that if the footage were exposed as a hoax before the show aired, the ratings would suffer. Jobson enlisted the help of his friend, a well-known private investigator, William Deere, to sort out his suspicions. But Deere was held back by producers, telling him that exposing the film as a hoax would hurt ratings. So he was told to limit the scope of his investigation in the film solely to finding the identity of the mystery cameraman. More than 10 years later, in April of 2006, the events surrounding the release of the footage were adapted into a feature film called Alien Autopsy, a British comedy directed by Johnny Campbell and written by William Davies. The film gave a humorous reconstruction of the making of the Santilli film based on Santilli's statements, without actually commenting on the veracity of his claims. A couple of days before the release of the film, a documentary entitled Iman Investigates, Alien Autopsy, presented by Iman Holmes. In it, Santilli and fellow producer Gary Shufield admitted that their film was a, quote, reconstruction, unquote, containing only a few frames from the original 22 rolls of film that Santilli supposedly viewed in 1992. They went on to explain that by the time they had raised enough money to purchase the originals, there were only a few frames that were still intact, that the rest had been degraded beyond the point of usability by heat and humidity. Is it getting thick in here or is it just me? Anyway, in the documentary, Holmes repeatedly refers to the film as a fake, while Santilli insists it's a restoration. He claimed that they had restored the damaged footage by filming a simulated autopsy on a fabricated alien based on what Santelli claims he saw, then added in a few frames of the original film that had not degraded. Of course, they wouldn't identify which frames were from the alleged original. According to Santilli, the set was constructed in the living room of an empty flat in Rochester Square, Camden Town, London. An artist and sculptor was commissioned to construct two dummy alien bodies over a period of three weeks, using casts containing sheep brains set in raspberry jam, chicken entrails, and knuckle joints obtained from a local wholesale butcher. The artist also played the role of the chief medical examiner in order to allow him to be the one to manipulate the effects being filmed. After filming, the team disposed of the alien bodies by cutting them into small pieces and placing them in rubbish bins across London. Alien artifacts that were supposedly items recovered from the crash site were depicted in Santilli's footage, including alien symbols and six-finger control panels. These were also created by the same artists that created the alien bodies. The footage showed a man reading a statement verifying his identity as the original cameraman and the source of the footage. Santilli admitted in the documentary that they had found an unidentified homeless man on the streets of Los Angeles. 
and persuaded him to play the role of the cameraman and filmed him in a motel. As far as I can see, Ray Santilli is still producing documentaries, although his last one seems to have been in 2013. Next up, Leslin mentioned on the post about hoaxes, the Conningling Fairies, which were a series of five photographs taken by Elsie Wright and Francis Griffiths, cousins who lived in Cottingley, which is near Bradford, England. In 1917, when the first two photographs were taken, Elsie was 16 years old and Francis was nine. The pictures gained the attention of writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who used them to illustrate an article about fairies he had been commissioned to write for the 1920 Christmas edition of the Strand magazine. Doyle was a spiritualist and was enthusiastic about the photographs, believing that they were real. The public's reception varied. Some believed the images to be real, but others believed they were fake. The interest in the Cottingley fairies waned after 1921, but the photographs continued to captivate people's imaginations. But in the early 80s, Elsie and Francis admitted that the photos were indeed fakes, having used cardboard cutouts of fairies copied from children's books. But Francis maintained that the fifth and final photograph was genuine. The lovely Nina of the Hosts Already Gone podcast mentioned the War of the Worlds, supposed hoax. It was actually an event. I don't think it was meant to be a hoax, but... The public mistakenly took a prank for reality, and things got out of hand. The War of the Worlds was an episode of the radio drama anthology series, The Mercury Theater on the Air. It was broadcast as a Halloween performance of the series on October 30, 1938, and aired on Columbia Broadcasting System Radio Network. The episode was an adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, written in 1898 and was directed and narrated by actor and, at the time, future filmmaker Orson Welles. The broadcast became famous for allegedly causing a mass public panic. It was presented as a series of staged news bulletins. The first news update interrupted a program of dance music to report that some odd explosions had been spotted on Mars. This was soon followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unusual object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Martians emerged from the object and attacked using heat rays during the next broadcast interruption, which was followed by a rapid series of news reports describing a devastating alien invasion taking place across the United States and the world. The realistic feel of the show was furthered by not having any commercial breaks, which was normal during a regular radio broadcast. In the days following the War of the Worlds broadcast, there was outrage expressed in the media. The program's news bulletin format was thought to be deceptive, leading to an outcry against those who were part of the broadcast, leading to more calls for regulations by the FCC. This broadcast, however, guaranteed Orson Welles' fame as a dramatist. One last hoax, or should I say possible hoax before I get on to today's tale, is the ongoing saga of Sherry Peppini. I'm not going to get 
too into the mess that is Sherry Papini, but Barry himself, your fantastic host of the Extraordinary Stories podcast, brought it up, and it's kind of similar to the story I'm going to tell you today. So Sherry Pampini, on November 2nd, 2016, seemingly vanished without a trace, apparently while jogging close to her home in Redding, California. Her husband grew concerned when he got home from work that day and could not find his wife. He used the Find My iPhone app and was able to locate her phone and earbuds about a mile from their home. Now, as Barry mentioned in his show, there's reasons to be skeptical right away. Why didn't he call the phone? Why is he using the Find My iPhone app? I agree. There's been a few times when I've called my daughter or she's called me and neither one of us has answered. So the next solution is to set off the Find My iPhone alert on each other. But it's never the first thing that we do. So then her husband finds her phone, kind of neatly placed with its earbuds on top of the phone. So he takes a picture of that and immediately contacted authorities to report his wife missing. A massive manhunt ensued and a $50,000 reward from an anonymous donor was offered for information leading to her whereabouts. Sherry reappeared 22 days later on Thanksgiving morning under very mysterious circumstances. A motorist noticed Sherry frantically waving alongside of a road in Yolo County, approximately 150 miles south of her home. One of the inconsistencies Barry points out in his show is that the person who found Sherry clearly stated that she saw a woman with long blonde hair waving on the road, but Sherry's husband would later report that her hair had been chopped off by her abductors. He also said that she was emaciated, weighing only 87 pounds when she was recovered and that her whole body was covered in bruises, ranging from yellowish in color to black and blue as a result of repeated beatings. He said her nose was broken and that she was actually branded on the back of her right shoulder. When she was found, she was bound around the waist by a chain. Her left wrist was tethered to the chain with a zip tie. Hose clamps were affixed to her ankles in what the sheriff's office described as a pain compliance restraint. Sherry reported to authorities that she was abducted at gunpoint and held captive by two armed Hispanic females who spoke Spanish most of the time and that she didn't understand what they were saying. It's going on a year this week that all of this happened and the entire narrative of the events have baffled investigators and internet sleuths alike, leading some to accuse Sherry of having fabricated the whole abduction story. But police have said they have no reason to not believe her. If you've listened to Barry's rendition of the tale and listened to him gleefully giggle at all the details, you'll quickly find that he's in the the story stinks camp and he makes some good points. I agree that something's not right. Nowadays though, none of us take an incredible story at face value. And for me, I think it's all going to be a matter of time. If nothing ever comes of the story, if nobody is ever arrested or prosecuted, then we may likely never know more than what we know now. 
If police have photographic evidence of the injuries Sherry sustained, they have no obligation to share those things publicly as long as the case is unsolved. If she's been untruthful, hopefully investigators will bring about some charges against Sherry and her husband in the future. Until then, we are likely going to be speculating forever. It's been a year and it baffles us. I mean, who goes through the trouble of kidnapping someone, torturing them for three weeks, no real reasons why she's being kidnapped, and then released without any explanation? It's weird, right? This never happens? Or does it? Well, I'm going to tell you the story of a woman who was kidnapped and inexplicably released from captivity two days later. Following her recovery, authorities held a press conference announcing that the entire abduction was a hoax. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the Gone Girl hoax. On March 23rd, 2015, a man broke into the Vallejo, California home of Aaron Quinn at approximately 3 in the morning. His girlfriend, Denise Huskins, was there with him at the time. According to Aaron's account, the intruder blinded them with bright lights and some kind of lasers and brandished a gun at the couple and then quickly tied them up put swimming goggles that had the lenses blacked out to cover their eyes. For some reason, the intruder, having a blood pressure cuff with him, took the couple's blood pressure. When that was done, the man forced them to drink what the abductor told them was a mixture of diazepam and NyQuil that was quickly making them both very drowsy. He then moved Denise to a closet and proceeded to put some headphones over Aaron's ears and played a pre-recorded message from a group of abductors that were there to collect a financial debt. The recording demanded an $8,500 ransom for Denise's safe return, and if they failed to comply, that they would first hurt Denise by electric shocks from an electrical cord, then if they were still not going to comply... They would cut her face. Aaron was then taken downstairs, bound with duct tape, and left on the sofa where he fell asleep from the sedatives. The kidnapper then took Denise, placed her in the trunk of Aaron's car, and drove off. Approximately eight hours later, Aaron woke up to find a camera trained on him with the red outline taped around him where he was laying. Afraid to move for fear of triggering something that would harm him, it would be another two hours before he decided to contact authorities to report the kidnapping. He was immediately faced with criticism from investigators who spent many, many hours interrogating him about his fantastical story. He recounted the details of the abduction, the sleep-inducing liquid, the pre-recorded ransom messages, the blacked-out goggles, all of it sounded like fiction to the police. That, along with the fact that it took him eight hours before he decided to report the abduction, they were skeptical. He also turned over to police two cell phones that the abductors left behind and that he had already received messages demanding a ransom payment of $8,500. 
At approximately 2 in the morning the next day, on March 24th, Aaron agreed to a polygraph examination by the FBI following this lengthy interrogation. The Vallejo Police Department did launch a massive search for Denise, but quickly their suspicions turned to Aaron, and they made it clear that they did not believe his story. Not only that, Aaron was the prime suspect in Denise's disappearance. That same day, the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper received an email with an audio file purportedly from Denise stating, I'm Denise Huskins. I've been kidnapped, but I'm otherwise fine. She also talks about the French Alps plane crash to establish the date and also references a personal detail about herself. The Chronicle also received an email message that the kidnapping victim will be dropped off the next day, March 25th. And sure enough, she reappeared. Two days after she had allegedly been kidnapped, she showed up seemingly unharmed 400 miles away in Huntington Beach, California, nearby her mother's residence. She found a man working on someone's landscape and asked to borrow his cell phone. She called her father to let him know that she was alive and safe. According to Denise's family, she and her father went to the Huntington Beach Police Department. There, she recounted a story very similar to the one that her boyfriend had told Vallejo police, that she was awoken in the middle of the night and attacked, that the intruder had shined bright lights in their faces, and that she was given headphones to listen to a pre-recorded message stating that they were a professional group and that she needed to come with them and that they were kidnapping her and that she was eventually put into the trunk of a car. She went into details about what happened to her while she was with her abductor. She told the FBI that she was bound with zip ties and that a bike chain was used to control her to keep her from escaping. She also told police that she was provided with food and water and was allowed to take a shower and brush her teeth. Now, here comes a huge inconsistency which led Vallejo investigators to further believe the abduction story was a fabrication. Denise told Huntington Beach authorities that she was not sexually assaulted, but according to police documents, she later told Vallejo police that she had been raped by her abductor on two different occasions. It would be this major inconsistency, along with Denise's apparent nonchalant demeanor, along with the extremely bizarre details of the entire abduction scenario that led Vallejo police to come to the conclusion that this case was a hoax. On March 25, 2015, the Vallejo Police Department publicly denounced Aaron and Denise. They further stated that they found absolutely no evidence to support the claims that Denise was abducted and that the couple in perpetrating the story of a false abduction, wasted valuable police resources. To police, things just didn't add up. Soon after Denise was recovered in Huntington Beach, an FBI agent was assigned to ensure that she was safely returned to Vallejo. The agent traveled from Northern California to Huntington Beach to the Orange County home where they were told Denise would be, but she was not there according to law enforcement. The FBI arranged for a plane to fly Denise to Northern California for an interview, but
but she never boarded that flight. More and more, these things were frustrating to investigators on the case. And more and more, they believed that their hoax theory was the correct theory. According to Lieutenant Kenny Park, a spokesperson for the Vallejo Police Department, after Denise failed to show up for the flight to Northern California, he stated, This search is what I would classify as a wild goose chase. It was an incredible story initially, and we had a hard time believing it. And as of right now, we have not heard from Ms. Huskins, and we are no longer in contact with any of the family members. Lieutenant Park went on to describe the kidnapping as an orchestrated event, that he does not know why this type of hoax was perpetrated, but that the FBI were investigating financial records for some possible clues as to a motive. Lieutenant Park also stated, and listen to this carefully, quote, this is not a random act, and the members of our community are safe and have nothing to fear. Investigators spent a lot of time looking into a crime that we believed was real. The fact that we essentially wasted all of these resources for really nothing is upsetting. Lieutenant Park further lamented the use of 40 detectives and more than 100 support personnel to locate Denise, even enlisting the help of the FBI. That is a tremendous amount of resources, in my opinion, that was wasted, Lieutenant Park stated. Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins have plundered valuable resources away from our community, and it has taken the focus away from the true victims of our community while instilling fear amongst its members. It's disappointing. It's disheartening. And if evidence indicates that either Ms. Huskins or Mr. Quinn have committed a criminal act, the Vallejo Police Department will request either state or federal charges. Authorities indicated that both Denise and Aaron had retained attorneys and were no longer talking to police, and that it was likely the couple could be facing some serious charges. Their attorneys were very quick to come to the defense of Aaron and Denise. They came right out and said that the police should have no reasons not to believe the couple. Aaron's attorney said that he has no idea why Denise's alleged kidnappers would go after him for money because he is not wealthy, although he did own a home and have a decent job. His attorney further stated, Aaron was bound and forced to take drugs by Denise's kidnappers. There seems to be a stream of blatant lies about our client, about the victim, and about what's going on. He's fully cooperated with Vallejo police and provided blood samples to prove that he was drugged. He gave them his passwords to his email accounts and was interrogated for 17 hours by FBI and police. He's basically died and gone to hell. He's in terrible shape. Police have never given them any evidence to indicate the kidnapping and ransom were a hoax. They have nothing to show that they believe he is a liar and why they believe this is a hoax. Denise's attorney told the Los Angeles Times that his client was truly kidnapped. He stated, she was abducted. She is a victim. And she is a woman who has been the victim of a violent crime and to a certain degree is being re-victimized. 
She's being victimized by police and hopefully this will come to an end for her. And at that point, her attorney had no further comment because the investigation was still ongoing. Less than 24 hours after the Vallejo Police Department publicly discredited the kidnapping at a press conference, the San Francisco Chronicle reporter Henry Lee received an email from an anonymous source claiming to speak for the group that kidnapped Denise. The email, somewhat of a manifesto-type document, read in part, Miss Huskins was definitely kidnapped. We did it. We will provide incontrovertible proof of that, and the Chronicle will break it. The email also discussed the group's supposed car theft activities, boasting that they fancied themselves a sort of Ocean's Eleven gentleman criminals. But said the operation went terribly wrong, so they decided to release Miss Huskins. The email also included several photos of alleged evidence, including the fake gun that they used and the, the room that Denise was held in. The email also claimed that the alleged kidnappers were completely outraged that the Vallejo police were accusing Denise of faking the kidnapping and demanded that the police apologize to her. Two days later, on March 28th, the Chronicle received another email with more details of the kidnapping, insisting that the ordeal was not a hoax. On March 30th, Lieutenant Park, the Vallejo police officer who publicly denounced Denise and Aaron's story of the kidnapping as an orchestrated event, was also sent an email demanding that the Vallejo Police Department publicly apologize to Denise for calling the kidnapping a hoax. The next day, on March 31st, a second email was sent again to Lieutenant Park, again claiming that the kidnapping was not a hoax and demanding an apology once again. She was kidnapped and they swear it. The emails also contained a deadline for the apology and a threat stating, if an apology didn't come, I slash we may be the direct agent of harm, but it will be made crystal clear that the Vallejo Police Department and you, Mr. Park, had every opportunity to stop it. The sender of the emails was directly singling out Lieutenant Park for his press conferences, claiming that the kidnapping was fabricated. However, the deadline passed without incident. Whatever was going to happen with Denise, Aaron, and the Vallejo Police Department remained to be seen. It seemed as far as investigators were concerned, though, the only criminals they might be having to go after were Aaron and his gone girl girlfriend, Denise. So, fast forward three months to June 5th, 2015. A couple in Dublin, California, were awakened at approximately 3.30 in the morning to find a masked intruder standing in their bedroom. He ordered the couple to turn away from him to lay face down on their bed and to place their hands behind their backs. The couple's daughter was in another room. The intruder told the couple repeatedly that their daughter was safe and that he was going to tie their hands behind their back. However, as he began to do so, one of the victims tackled him to the ground and in doing so partially removed the mask from his face. The man, wrestling with the intruder, yelled for his wife to get their gun but the suspect suddenly bashed the male victim in the head with the metal object, believed to be a flashlight, and fled the scene. 
The couple immediately called for help and the male victim was treated for his injuries. They had luckily thwarted this robbery attempt as the suspect made off with nothing. And not only did he make off with nothing, he actually left something behind at the scene. His cell phone. Of all things, he just about handed his identity over to authorities on a silver platter. Police were able to track down the suspect within two days by June 7th. Alameda County Sheriff's detectives were able to obtain what are known as Ramey warrants, which are specific types of search and arrest warrants for the owner of the cell phone. I did not know what a Ramey warrant was, so I looked it up, and it's kind of interesting and worth a mention here. A Ramey warrant is an arrest warrant that is obtained by a police agency by going directly to the judge, essentially bypassing the district attorney. Usually, in order for police to get a warrant, they have to submit a report to the DA, and if the DA feels there's enough evidence to file the case, the police can request that the case be filed and at the same time an arrest warrant be issued. This is what's known as a walkthrough warrant. However, with the Ramey warrant, the police may choose to skip the DA and go directly to a judge and try to get the arrest warrant signed. Police must submit a declaration along with a report to the judge setting out their reasons for requesting that the judge issue the warrant directly. If the judge feels that there is probable cause and sufficient evidence that this person has committed a crime, then the judge will issue the warrant. These types of warrants are often requested and processed after regular business hours. I've actually seen this on TV police dramas where detectives knock on the door of a judge's home and bother them in the middle of the night to sign a warrant, but I really didn't know that that was actually a thing. The reasons why police would choose to get a Ramey warrant instead of doing the regular type of arrest warrant is because of urgency. It's a faster process. It also is done when a police officer feels that he or she may not have enough evidence for the DA to actually file the charges and doesn't want to take the chance that the DA will reject the case. So if he or she can get a judge to issue a Ramey warrant, the officer can then arrest the person and question them with the hopes of obtaining enough information and sufficient evidence to present it to the DA for filing. These types of warrants are legal but they're relatively rare. There might be a situation where an officer will choose to go with the Ramey warrant because he or she had previously tried to file a case against the suspect, but the DA rejected it for lack of evidence. Then the officer's strategy becomes to arrest the person, obtain the evidence they need through questioning, lineups, or other investigatory techniques. But if the suspect refuses to talk and provides police with nothing, then the officer needs to either try to file the case as is or release the individual. This is probably the best example of why, if you are ever arrested, just stay quiet and get an attorney. There is a chance that they've got nothing on you. So, back to my story. On June 7th, investigators identified and tracked down the owner of the cell phone left at the scene of the Dublin home invasion 
as being one Matthew Muller, a South Lake Tahoe, California resident. On June 8th, with their Ramey warrant, Muller was arrested and taken into custody and booked on suspicion of robbery. Police also had warrants to search Muller's home and vehicles, and what they found was absolutely astounding. Amongst his possessions, authorities discovered night vision goggles, women's makeup, including mascara and foundation, duct tape, pliers, an empty zip tie bag, a baggie containing 42 diazepam pills and weight loss medication, blacked out goggles, a white comforter, sensual massage lubricant, hotel key cards, a four-channel wireless video camera with receiver, and a collection of three different kinds of drones. In Muller's car, they found tape that contained hair and fibers, and guess who those hair and fibers would later be connected to? If you guessed Miss Denise Huskins, you would be correct. During the search of Muller's belongings, police also discovered a laptop that would also later be determined to have been stolen from, you guessed it, the very same victim, Denise Huskins. They also found a blood pressure cuff, further corroborating Aaron's story that their blood pressure had been taken prior to the suspect administering drugs to them. While investigating Muller for the home invasion in Dublin, they were also attempting to link him to other similar break-ins in the area that had gone unsolved, including one dating back to 2009 in Palo Alto, California. As the case was moving along, investigators continued uncovering evidence that was linking Muller to the kidnapping of Denise Huskins earlier in the year. The one that Vallejo police had blown off as a hoax? Yes, that one. I hope Lieutenant Park and the rest of his department were hungry because they were about to eat their words. As it turns out, Denise and Aaron's story was not a hoax. Everything that they had told police, the break-in, the lights shined in their faces, being tied up, drugged, Denise being put into the trunk of the car, kidnapped, ransom demand, released two days later, everything they had detailed to authorities. It was all true. As they had been trying to tell police for the past five months, even the kidnapper himself had been trying to tell the Vallejo police that Denise and Aaron were telling the truth. Through his emails to the San Francisco Chronicle and to the police department. But nobody was listening. They had concluded that the story was a hoax and they refused to investigate it any further. Even going so far as to tell the entire community that they were safe. How absurd and reckless, knowing all along this dangerous man was lurking around, breaking into homes, terrorizing people, having terrorized Denise and Aaron and police brushed them off. I can't imagine. So who was this Matthew Muller guy anyway? Well, 
As far as his early life is concerned, it seems like he was born and raised to become a successful, productive member of society. By all accounts, he had the ideal upbringing. His parents, Monty and Joyce Muller, were two longtime educators working in the Sacramento, California area. Muller was an extremely intelligent, high-achieving student at Bella Vista High School in Fair Oaks, California, where he graduated from in 1995. As one of his ninth grade teachers would describe him, he was a high achiever, but largely unmemorable. He was pleasant, he had friends, he played the saxophone in the school band, but nothing really made him stand out from anyone else. Others described him in high school as friendly and funny. After graduation, Muller enlisted into the Marines and ended up in Okinawa, Japan, where he worked for a newspaper off his base and played the trumpet in the Marine Corps band. He also traveled to Australia and to the United Arab Emirates, among other places during his time in the Marines. In 1999, he left the Marine Corps and enrolled at Pomona College in Claremont, California, where he majored in science and technology. While there, he was interviewed for a school publication where he described himself as classically smart, but a lazy high school student who lacked discipline and maturity. He graduated summa cum laude from Pomona and then went on to receive his Juris Doctor degree from Harvard Law School. At Harvard, he was amongst the youngest scholars voted onto the law school faculty. He worked at Harvard's immigration clinic where he trained and supervised law students representing clients in immigration matters. His articles were published in law journals and academic publications, according to a very flattering biography posted in 2011 on the website of Reeves & Associates, a San Francisco law firm that had just hired him. His bio also stated that he spoke fluent Spanish, Russian, and German. However, that same year that Muller was hired at the law firm of Reeves & Associates, his relationship with his new employer quickly deteriorated. In a 2011 complaint filed in the U.S. District Court of San Francisco, the law firm accused Muller of stealing the firm's records. He accomplished this thievery by spending the night in its offices with a sleeping bag and accessing company records. According to documents, Reeves stated, Muller boldly and in stealth mode rummaged through the files of his law firm's computer network and in his final days before resigning, accessed confidential files, copied corporate client lists, and tried to cover his tracks by using a computer application to erase signs of his conduct. Subsequent to that, in 2013, while working as an immigration lawyer for the firm of Karoski, Pervs, and Bogue, Mueller got in trouble again, but this time with the California State Bar for failing to show up for cases, among other grievances. In April of 2014, an order was filed in federal court in San Francisco, essentially changing Mueller's status as an attorney to inactive. The order was mailed to Mueller twice, but both times it was returned as undeliverable. And then, 
Come 2015, this bizarre kidnapping of Denise and other break-ins that were being linked to him, authorities were working hard at attempting to sort through the puzzle that is the life of Matthew Muller. And while that's going on, his attorney looked as though he was preparing for a defense that would focus on the mental state of his client. His attorney would go on to describe Muller as suffering from a debilitating mental health issue that made it impossible for him to practice law competently. His attorney stated, his adult life has been marked with mental health issues, including diagnoses of bipolar disorder and psychosis. At times he could be highly productive. At others, depression made it hard for him to get out of bed. Although at the time his attorney wasn't confirming that it was Muller who wrote all those emails to the San Francisco Chronicle, and to the Vallejo Police Department, he did say that the emails screamed mental disease. So, this high academic achiever, former Marine, Harvard-educated lawyer, found himself behind bars and charged with one of the most bizarre kidnapping cases in recent memory? The March 23rd kidnapping of Denise Huskins the drugging of both her and her boyfriend, binding them with zip ties, covering their eyes with blacked out goggles, kidnapping her from her home, driving off with her in the trunk, her boyfriend to awaken hours later to report her missing, only to find himself a suspect in her disappearance. And then two days later, Denise turns up more than 400 miles away and their whole ordeal is written off as an elaborate hoax. And lo and behold, they had been truthful all along. And the suspect, this guy, with this stellar resume and accolades to his name, this is the perpetrator. You just can't make this stuff up. As the news of this arrest began to emerge and the details of the case against Muller, you can imagine that the Vallejo Police Department quickly came under fire as a result of their initial handling of the kidnapping. After writing Denise and Aaron's claims off as a fabricated abduction event, they had indeed received those emails, purportedly from Muller, saying that he and a group of accomplices kidnapped Denise. Yet, despite the emails, the Vallejo police never backed down from its contention that the couple had faked the whole story. Even in one of those emails, Muller had demanded that the Vallejo police issue a full and unequivocal apology to Denise. Following these developments and Muller's arrest, the police department continued to not only refuse to comment about the case, claiming that the FBI asked them not to, but they also said that they were not going to apologize to Denise or Aaron for their decisions, and they were not going to make any apologies anytime soon. After Muller was arrested and connected to Denise's kidnapping, a spokesperson for the police department said that the department will not issue an apology because it's waiting for the FBI investigation into the kidnapping to be completed. As a matter of fact, the city manager claimed that the police department never stopped investigating the kidnapping. Yeah, okay, but were they investigating the kidnapping or were they investigating the hoax that they thought the kidnapping was? 
This wasn't stopping anyone from calling on the police department to publicly apologize to the couple. Their attorneys called for them to apologize because they endured public humiliation and mockery despite being nothing but cooperative, conscientious human beings. They said in the aftermath of the kidnapping ordeal and the department's public accusations, their jobs were compromised along with their integrity and their friendships. They were ostracized by everyone other than their own family members. Their attorneys blamed the department for rushing to judgment and ignoring key facts and clues, stating, how can you reach a resolution to any case, much less a very, very complicated one in several hours? It's unfathomable. What happened here reflects a systemic hubris that comes with the uniform. The vitriol over the case spilled over into social media. People asking, where is the public apology? A post called the Vallejo Police Department the dumbest organization in America. A professor of criminal justice at Cal State University at Sacramento said that sometimes law enforcement ends up with egg on its face when calling out hoaxes, especially in bizarre cases. Police can find themselves jumping to the conclusion that crimes just don't occur this way. He went on to say that at some point they're going to have to say it if they screwed up. Well, the Vallejo Police Department did send a letter to Denise through her attorney. And it's sort of an apology. I don't know. I'll read it to you guys and you be the judge. It states, Dear Miss Huskins, We apologize for and regret comments made by representatives of the Vallejo Police Department, VPD, during the initial kidnapping investigation. We understand that these contributed to the difficulty and personal ordeal that you have experienced. While these comments were based on our findings at the time, they proved to be unnecessarily harsh and offensive. In light of the new evidence cited in the recently unsealed federal complaint, dated June 29, 2015, and not available to the VPD or the FBI at the time of the kidnapping, it is now clear that the kidnapping on March 23, 2015 was not a hoax or an orchestrated event and that the VPD conclusions were incorrect. As you know, the VPD and the FBI were jointly investigating this incident from the onset. While we believe our officers took appropriate investigative steps with the information that was available at the time of the abduction, subsequent events and the continued joint FBI and VPD investigation of those events led to the conclusion that an abduction had indeed occurred. The VPD continues to work closely with the FBI and federal prosecutors to ensure that justice is achieved. To this end, VPD will not be making any public comments so as not to impede, sidetrack, or divert attention or resources from the current investigation. It is our hope and expectation that an indictment will be forthcoming against Matthew Muller. At that time, the VPD will make our apology to you public. And so that was their letter to Denise on July 20th, 2015. What do you guys think? You let me know in the discussion group. So back to Mueller. By September of 2015, he pleaded no contest to the June home invasion, 
the one where he left his cell phone behind leading to his arrest and subsequent connection to Denise's kidnapping. He was arraigned in federal court a few days later after that plea for the kidnapping. And on October 1st, Mueller was indicted by a federal grand jury charging him with one count of kidnapping. Nearly one year later, on September 29, 2016, Mueller pleaded guilty to one count of kidnapping. He was not charged with any counts of sexual assault. And from what I could glean from information online, it's because the police investigation, along with Denise's reluctance to meet with detectives subsequent to recovery and the time that lapsed, that critical evidence was lost. One of the most interesting aspects of this already bizarre case was the equipment Mueller used in order to surveil his victims and plan out his crimes, the details of which came out during his court hearings. What made this nowadays rare kidnapping for ransom scheme all the more notable was the fact that Mueller utilized many of the tools we now have in the internet age. A possible glimpse as to what a brutal crime might look like when it's merged with the digital age. According to FBI court filings related to Denise's kidnapping, Mueller utilized anonymous remailers, image sharing sites, Tor, and other people's Wi-Fi to communicate with police and the media, as well as painstakingly scrubbed metadata from photos before sending them. I'm not much of a techie, so I looked up some of this stuff, and for those who are like me, technologically challenged, that is, anonymous remailers are servers that receive messages with embedded instructions on where to send them next, and that forwards them without revealing where they originally came from, and Tor is a free software that enables users to communicate anonymously. In addition, Mueller used computer spyware and a drop cam to monitor the aftermath of the kidnapping, and he had a radio-controlled drone standing by to pick up the ransom by remote. It might be worth a mention to point out that Mueller had once made the Journal of the American Bar Association's list of techiest lawyers for his savviness with computers. In his emails to the Chronicle and to the Vallejo police, Mueller detailed how he, and he claims along with two other men, turned away from their legitimate employment to a life of crime, beginning with stealing luxury cars from upscale Bay Area neighborhoods, often using radio frequency identification sniffers to wirelessly clone keys. They set up their base of operations on Mare Island, using abandoned buildings on the south end of the peninsula to store and process the stolen cars. Mueller said that they had IP video surveillance, game cameras, a full electronic perimeter, and a drone. A multi-thousand dollar custom drone, not just a kid's toy, and they got good at using it on the island. Mueller went on in his emails describing how they moved on to more serious crimes, ending with the kidnapping for ransom for Denise this being a trial run for future abductions for wealthier victims. He said he wore wetsuits to avoid leaving DNA and that they were planning on accepting ransoms in the form of diamonds and picking them up via drones. And it was all of this, this elaborate setup that had been going on, which convinced police that all of this was a put-on. 
So on March 16th, 2017, nearly two years after Denise's abduction ordeal, Muller was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Denise was in court for the sentencing. She had prepared a very emotional victim impact speech to read to the court, and I am going to read it for you here today. And the reason I'm going to read it to you is because I do not want the fact that this woman was sexually assaulted by this man to be forgotten because he would not be held accountable for it. And I also don't want it to be lost on you either that while she was being sexually assaulted, it was during the time that her boyfriend was being interrogated and accused of either causing or orchestrating his girlfriend's disappearance. That was happening to her. And the police made an egregious mistake. And even after Denise was recovered, the police department continued to re-victimize her by continually accusing her and Aaron of making the whole thing up. It's important to me that you hear exactly what she had to say about her kidnapping and rape. Her statement read as follows. Matthew Muller. The voice has a face. It has a name. Now we finally meet face to face. Eye to eye. I am Denise Huskins, the woman behind the blindfold. The woman you drugged, tortured, raped, and attempted to manipulate. The woman you repeatedly apologized to, repeatedly complimented for the strength in dealing with this life-threatening situation that you helped inflict upon me. Remember the times you acknowledged and said to me that you could see that Aaron and I were good people and that we did not deserve this? Before you put me in the trunk of Aaron's car, taking me captive, you told me that this wasn't meant for me and you named Aaron's ex by her first name and last name. However, your group made the decision to continue with it because you needed the practice. You later went into detail about your group, the startup organization of gentlemen criminals that you were part of. You explained that the members of your group were highly trained in military, technology, and the psychological effects of victims of kidnapping and other violent crimes. You described how you had followed through with threats made on prior victims and their families. You explained to me how you had staked out Aaron's home for months, saw old mail of his ex fiancés and thought it was hers. Her mail stopped coming over three months prior to the kidnapping, which gives an idea of how long this was premeditated, how long you could have decided to not follow through with it. You even said to me that if you had looked closer, saw my identification in my purse before that night, seeing that I was not her, your group would have never attacked us. But here we are. You promised not to dehumanize me any more than you had to. Yet, for the next two days, you treated me like an object, a toy, and an animal to fulfill you and your associates' selfish, evil needs. You acknowledged the pain and suffering that I was going through from the very beginning, telling me at times that I was clearly in denial from what was happening, explaining to me the person suffering, how I would struggle to heal from this for a long time to come. You know that I was convinced that the decision would ultimately be to kill me. We discussed that many times. You attempted to reassure me that wasn't the plan, 
even if that was decided by your associates, you wouldn't follow through. That if it were to come to that, you had an escape plan for you and your family, which you would use before killing me. Well, I'm glad you have some code of conduct, some ceiling measure of how far you'd go. Gentlemen criminals, lucky me. Somehow you reasoned to yourself that you weren't all that bad. You were staying professional, following procedure and protocol. What did one of those emails say? You became my advocate. You still made sure that I was well cared for, right? For two days, you followed through with the drugging me, holding me captive, raping me, forcing me to record a proof of life, still hinting all the ways that I could be punished if I didn't comply. You had an escape plan. You had every opportunity to do something different. Yet, you were able to follow through with two days of physical and psychological torture, watching me suffer, explaining to me how it would be an endless road to recover from. But you didn't kill me, so you're not all that bad, right? I understand that character letters were sent by individuals who had known you and spent time with you. I understand that they had positive experiences with you and noticed how you had struggled in your young adulthood. I'm not surprised that you had, at some points, a positive impact on people's lives. I can see how much your family supports you and are at your side through all of this. I do not believe that any one person is all good or all bad. But when you use the good that people receive to inflict terror, that is where the real deception lies. I had also struggled in my young adulthood. You know that. I shared that with you. I told you about being molested as a child and how that impacted me and that it had been really hard to heal, but therapy helped. I shared that most personal information with you after you claimed to be suffering from PTSD and insomnia. I was trying to connect with this voice who was hardly human in hopes it would spare me from more torture, spare my body, and spare my life. After sharing that, you still made the decision to rape me, and not just violating my body, but forcing me to perform, act, and have it recorded. I was heavily sedated for a 48-hour period. You and your associates did an excellent job at making your threats clear. I saw flashes of light and heard the electric shock of tasers. I felt the sharp edge of a knife as it grazed my skin when you cut the zip ties off. I was outnumbered. You were armed. You were trained. I was helpless and defenseless. If I fought or not, the rapes would still happen. So I lessened the blow and complied. And of course, it didn't happen once, but twice. What an elaborate excuse you gave as to why and why it happened again. It didn't matter what you said. It doesn't change the things that you did to me. The second time you forced me to kiss you, and say things to make it seem like you were a legitimate couple. You couldn't just take my physical body and let me be detached from it. 
like I was in the first rape, as you flopped me around the bed like a rag doll. The second time, you made me perform. Let's pretend like we are with other people, the people we love, to get us through it, as if this were happening to the both of us. I saw right through all of this, but I knew I had to appease you. The only way I got through it was to picture that it was Aaron that I was with, and that will haunt me for the rest of my life. I know you did that on purpose, to leave your mark on me in the most special, intimate moments of my life. I knew that every moment of expressed remorse was nonsense, an attempt to manipulate me to trust you. I never trusted you and was convinced until the drive down to Southern California that you would kill me, that it was only just a matter of time before my life would be over. You expressed your disbelief in how I was handling all of this. Why was I not acting hysterically, begging and pleading for you to spare my life, spare my body? I didn't react that way because I knew that's what you wanted, what you were looking for, what thrilled you, what motivated you. You wanted to have that type of power over another being's life. That's why you had practiced and prepared, planned these types of scenarios as far back as 2009, your conduct escalating until you finally succeeded in taking me. When I was lying on the floor before you brought me inside, you said that you had prepared and cleaned the place before having me enter. I could hear you scrub a bathroom floor, a bathtub. My wildest imagination flashed images of what you were cleaning, possibly the remains of prior victims, what was to come, what torture you and your associates would put me through. I had no idea what to expect and knew that this was probably it for me. My life was coming to an end and I had made peace with that. I told myself no matter how much they tortured me, I would not beg and scream. I would not plead for mercy just so they could shut me up and put me in my place. If that was what they were in this for, I would not give them the satisfaction. If I were to die, if this were to be my last moment, hour, day on this earth, I would not live it screaming, panicking, or crying in terror. I would go out proud and grateful for the life that I lived, the family and friends that I have, the grievances I have overcome, the amazing career that I loved, the patients and colleagues that I've worked with, the loves I've experienced, especially in finding the love of my life, Aaron. I didn't know what was to come, but I did know that I had all these people there with me, their love and energy to give me strength to survive. I would not let myself see the terror. All I focused on was them. That is how I survived. I know that you have made countless excuses, from the military to bipolar disorder, even to vaccines. Be a man. 
the so-called powerful man that you try to fool yourself into being by tormenting others. Own up to your actions. Take accountability. Tell the truth. You finally pled guilty here, but what about the others? I know you think you have the public and the system fooled, but not Aaron, not me. Your Honor, Matthew Muller is an incredibly intelligent man. That, I won't deny him. I have no doubt that every decision he made was strategic to help prevent him from being caught. He told me that even if he didn't get the ransom, this mission would still be successful because it allowed him and his associates to practice. Even if there was a lot of media attention, it did not worry him. He said it would be good PR for the group. It blew my mind how arrogant he was. How so sure that he wouldn't get caught. But he was right. Before releasing me, he had the nerve to say to me how he wished he could have met me under different circumstances. That my strength was admirable. I asked if he was being honest in the four times he had told me that he wouldn't do this again. He had said that putting a human being through this wasn't what he got in this for. That the pain it inflicted was more real than when they were planning it. And that he was done after this. Yet, two short months later, he attacked again. Beyond the nightmare I endured with this man, I couldn't fathom what was to come. Once released, all I could do was focus on putting one foot in front of the other, trying not to stumble from still being heavily sedated and immobile for days. Everything was overwhelming. Sights, sounds. Everything was a threat. Were they still watching me? All I knew was I was in a familiar neighborhood, almost home to my family. That's all I could focus on. I felt like a little girl, scared, confused, hurting, and wanting, needing the love and warm embrace of my parents to hear their voices tell me, it's okay, you're safe, we got you, we love you, thank God you're alive. I hadn't known what was going on in the outside world except for half an article the voice had shown me the night before. I read a few lines, the article naming a cousin of mine, then naming my father, and how he was saying I was a strong woman and pleaded for these people to not hurt me. I couldn't finish reading it. My eyes reflexively shut, tears streaming down my face. I curled into a ball, sobbing into my hands. I hadn't let the voice see me cry yet. I didn't want him to. I believe that's why he showed me. He wanted to break me. As I cried for my parents, my family, and friends, for what agony, horror, and confusion of the unknown they must be battling, I felt him put his hands on me to console me. What a joke. Consoling me for the pain that he was putting me through. Within an hour of my release, the police questioning began, and I very quickly learned that they did not believe me. I was a suspect accused of making all of this up and then publicly shamed after a press conference by an officer from the Vallejo Police Department who stated that I owed the public an apology. I had to retain a criminal defense attorney to fight for my innocence. 
I lost my job. I lost my health insurance at a time when I needed the most care. When speaking with law enforcement, there were two things the voice warned me that I could not discuss. That he was a former military and that he had sex with me. If I were to disclose either of these pieces of information, he would come after my family and I believed him. When I was 12 years old, I was molested. It took over a decade for me to tell my mother. Years after that man molested me, he molested another little girl and was caught. Had I told my mother at the time, the horror that that little girl had gone through could have been prevented. I lived with that shame and guilt because of that most of my life, and I'm still forgiving myself. So despite the threat to my family, I needed to tell police about the rapes. A sexual assault exam is the most vulnerable thing a woman can do after being assaulted. But you go through it in the hopes that the information they collect could help find the perpetrator and prevent other women from this horrific experience. You hope that by making that sacrifice, that opening your legs to strangers to pick and prod and examine and picture you, it could possibly save others from the same fate. The Vallejo Police Department and the FBI questioned me for an entire day before agreeing to take me to the hospital for the sexual assault exam. I was scared for my life and my family's life if the media reported that I was going to the hospital. The kidnappers would surely conclude that I told the police what I was warned not to. I was paranoid of everyone. Nothing was safe. The nurses examined my body, noting and taking pictures of the bruising on the left side of my back where he had dropped me when trying to pull me out of the trunk. They surveyed my naked back with a black light, swabbed my bare chest, neck, stomach, and groin where Muller had put his lips and tongue on me. They examined me internally, noting and taking pictures of comparatively small lesions on my cervix. I wasn't even sure if this information would only be used against me and confirmed to the police that I was lying. And here I was, the victim of a kidnapping and rapes, completely exposed with no loved ones nearby. Wishing that I had put up more of a fight, was beaten more, was torn into more, so that the police would be more likely to believe me. I am eternally grateful for the Alameda County Sheriff's Office who, several months later, caught Matthew Muller after he attacked the family in Dublin. Aaron and I were finally believed, but we are deeply disturbed that it took him terrorizing another family to get to this point. I cannot count the times people labeled this kidnapping and actions of the kidnappers as bizarre. These are not unique circumstances. Not all criminals act in irrational, passionate, foolish, animal-like ways. Some may, but in the case of Matthew Muller, he is calculated, strategic, having spent years, decades, learning, studying, crafting his behaviors so he wouldn't be caught or suspected, so he can continue to be successful in his acts of torture and violence. 
Criminals like this put on a facade for the people in their lives. They are keenly aware of right and wrong, what is socially acceptable and what's not. That's why they keep these actions to themselves and from their loved ones. They appear to be normal, kind, generous, well-spoken, intelligent, charming. That's not in their character. That's not the Matthew Muller we know. He has kept his true intentions and motivations to himself, knowing how awful they were. I could see right through it every moment that I was with him, but developed a rapport with him in hopes that some bit of the good in him would choose not to kill me. Every day I'm grateful to be alive. Despite the many hopeless moments Aaron and I have overcome thus far, I still manage to hold out some hope for the future. Because of the aftermath of the kidnapping, and because of the kidnapping itself, it has been a long, hard struggle to pick up the pieces of our lives. We fortunately have an amazing support system from both of our friends and families. We have moved cities, started new jobs. It took about nine months for the shock to subside after the kidnapping before my body could start to feel the horror that it was suppressing from that experience. And once it surfaced, it was so beyond my control. My body finally started feeling the deep terror that I had lived through. I thought that I would have to be hospitalized because of the intensity of it. I couldn't stop shaking. I felt like at any second would lose all bodily functions. Every molecule in my body seemed to be colliding with one another, like they were trying to break free from the confinements of my skin escaping from the terror. I have never felt so removed from my own body, so out of control. I still have nightmares every night. For over a year, if I came home alone, I would grab a knife and look behind every door and in every corner. I have a hammer by my bed that I reach for in the worst of my nightmares. Sleep is not rest for me. It's a trigger. There's not a moment in the day that I don't remember this. It's not that I want to focus on it, but the depth of the terror is so deep. I've had to learn how to live side by side with it. I'm humbled in that reality, this new reality. I'm at that point in my life where Aaron and I talk about marriage and a family. But I'm so scared of bringing a child into this world after the horror Muller has put me through, put my family through. I still remember after months of shock, my mother finally breaking down, crying in my arms, sobbing as she stroked my back and my hair like a child. My baby girl, why? Why do they keep attacking my sweet girl? My only response was to squeeze her back and say, I don't know. I admire my parents, my father for finding the strength to get through it, knowing that his only baby girl had to fight for her life, rape, tortured, attacked and accused by police, and how both of them had to stand by helpless. And I thank God for the attorneys Aaron and I were able to find, but ask why innocent victims should have to hire lawyers to shield them from the people who are sworn to protect them. Above all, 
I'm so grateful for Aaron standing by my side, giving me strength and support as I continue to struggle. We both still have difficulties, but he had to return to work quickly to selflessly support us and allow us to move forward with our lives. He knows exactly how to calm me, care for me, how to hold me in the midst of my nightmares. The thought of returning to his arms during those 48 hours helped get me through it, and I never want him to let me go. He gives me peace, love, laughter, and hope in humanity. I still can't make sense of any of this, and I accept that I will never know. But what I do know is that Matthew Muller willingly, thoughtfully participated in this hell we have survived. He had every opportunity in that 48 hours to do something different, but chose not to. He said he was remorseful and he would never do it again. Yet, two months later, he still attacked another family. He is capable of acting out the perfect vision of a changed man. His intelligence is his most valuable and well-crafted weapon. Hopefully, for the sake of his own soul, he will rehabilitate himself behind bars. But I have no doubt that this man should not be free to walk amongst the rest of us. I don't say that because I believe in revenge, in an eye for an eye, but because of my experiences with him, without a doubt or hesitation, I know that as long as he walks free, there will be more victims. On July 5th, 2017, U.S. District Judge Troy Nunley cleared the way for Denise and Aaron's defamation and emotional distress lawsuit against the Vallejo police to move forward, a lawsuit that attorneys representing the VPD attempted to have thrown out. In his 22-page decision, the judge wrote, The conduct plaintiffs allege goes beyond defendants being skeptical, investigating alternative theories, and expressing skepticism. A reasonable jury could find that the defendants engaged in conduct that was extreme and outrageous. And as of this recording, we are still waiting the outcome of this hopefully final battle for Denise. And with that, I will bring this 18th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Thank you all again for listening to this story. I know it was long and convoluted, and I appreciate you all hanging in there with me to the end. I feel like there were some lessons to be learned here, especially when it comes to judging victims, especially victims of violent crimes and sexual assault. There is no standard how a crime is committed, and there is no script as to how a victim is to behave. And it's maddening to know what this couple had to endure, being victimized by Matthew Muller, and then being victimized again by the people who were supposed to help. It's ridiculous. I'd like to thank everyone who answered my question about hoaxes in the Extraordinary Stories discussion group. It seemed like a good place to talk about hoaxes. Come on over to my Facebook discussion page if you'd like to talk about any hoaxes or non-hoaxes, as it were, that you would like to discuss. 
I'm interested in what you guys think about this Sherry Papini saga, actually. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod, and you can email me with any show suggestions at CaliforniaPod at Yahoo.com. Also, I'm going to do a drawing very soon with everyone's submissions with your city, state, province, or country, and choose a location to visit and tell the tale of that crime from someplace one of you guys suggested. So, keep your ears peeled for that. I also wanted to let you guys know that I had the chance to contribute to a couple of other podcasts who put together some compilation specials. Moms and Murder had a favorite crime special that I contributed a short bit about my take on their very first case they covered, Casey Anthony. The Corpus Delecti ladies put together a Halloween special, and I discussed the case involving a dispute over Halloween decorations out of Buena Park, California. And Murder Under the Midnight Sun has a serial killer special where I discuss the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. If you guys haven't had a chance to listen to those specials, I'll be posting my contributions to each of those shows on Patreon for anyone who's interested. The support on Patreon has been tremendous, and I am ever so grateful to everyone who's taken the time to contribute, even if it's just $1. Every little bit helps keep California Dreaming going. California Dreaming is now a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network of Podcasts. We've joined forces with an amazing group of podcasts from a variety of genres, such as The Concession Stand, where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, and Super Nerds UK, where hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon take an irreverent look at pop culture, and Busted Wide Open, a show where Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous take you on a weekly journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment, and Historium, a podcast that's devoted to the strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. And Is This Adulting? Where best friends Stephen and Chris break down the stigma on mental illness through the lens of comedy. Or The Dirty Bits Podcast. Join host Tawny Plattis for her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. And For One Owned, a show where hosts GT, Dak, Kevin, Jack, and Matt fill your ear holes with all things gaming. If any of these shows sound like they might pique your interest, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com and click on their links. And don't forget to visit the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcast merchandise store, where you can get all sorts of California dreaming stuff. T-shirts, hoodies, phone and laptop cases, mugs, stickers, and notebooks. And I'm hearing that there will soon be tote bags, pillows, and tapestries. So I'll keep you posted when those things are available. You can support me and your other favorite creators by visiting the Orbital Jigsaw store. As always, I will post the link in the show notes and on social media. Thank you again. And until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>